Don't much you, but I find those images are so powerful to reflect on the way of Christ in his uh, focus on reaching out for those who are otherwise ignored or overlooked. We continue in our series, pick it up again now in uh, Ephesians chapter 5 as we explore God's intention, God's purposes for the world. And we come to a, uh, a passage that gets quite a range of emotions uh, in terms of how people respond to this passage. I want to encourage us to see this passage in its own context, in its time, and to move from fairly flat words on a page to something that has much more shape and context to it, and to see what it means to be a a follower of Christ in the realities of our core relationships, especially as seen in a household. So to start with, I want to have a bit of a recap as to the immediate context of this passage, because it's often expressed as we've just in this passage as though Paul was moving into a whole new topic between verse 21 and into verse 22. And that is not the case. There's a strong connection between the two. So a bit of a recap. The sentence that Paul commenced in chapter 5 and verse 18 started with a negative, don't get drunk on wine. And when we looked at that, I reminded uh, you that we, the early church met in homes. There weren't church buildings for a number of hundreds of years. And as people met in homes, they would share together the Lord's Supper. They'd have the meal together. And after the meal, they'd move on to what was known as a symposium. That is the stage where uh, interaction would happen. And in some cases, there'll be... Uh, philosophical discussions about life and purpose and value. Um, But more often than not, the symposium would turn to a drinking party where the alcohol would be brought on and as uh, the drinks increased, so people's uh, behaviour lost its inhibitions. And Paul said, uh, don't move into that stage of getting drunk with wine, but rather focus the gathering on worship. So then Paul talks about being filled not by wine but by the Spirit, by the Spirit, with the Spirit and all that comes through the, uh, the presence, the working of the Spirit. And that is an experience for everyone, uh, addressing one another. So there's no, one who's, there's no sense in saying, well, the Spirit's going to come on particular people, upon the leaders It'll just come across those who are particularly gifted in different ways. But Paul makes it quite clear that all those who are in Christ can expect and are being filled by the Spirit. And so that mutuality is woven into everything that comes as a result. And having got this, uh, the key verb there, be filled by the Spirit, it's in the present tense, it is something that continues to happen there are, just to be technical, five participles that follow. In other words, unpacking, what does that look like? What does being filled by the Spirit, how could we see that? And that's unpacked by these five participles. Addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Singing and making melody to the Lord of your, uh, with your heart. Giving thanks for everything, always, to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Then the fifth one of those, still part of this one sentence, 
driven by being filled by the Spirit, is submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. That mutuality is still being given expression. And it is actually logical where we recognise that the Spirit isn't just given to the most important, to those of positions of authority, which actually was how it was in the Old Testament, but now has come upon all people, young and old, male and female. The Spirit enables us to see that God is at work in and through every one of us. And that's actually an incredibly significant uh, recognition that, that shapes everything that follows. Now the phrase, out of reverence for Christ, is what we would describe these days in the language of that changes the worldview that we, we locate ourselves in. We're not living in a world where we are the centre of the world, or the movers and shakers and the success stories and those with power at the centre of the world. We are living in a Christocentric world. Christ is at the centre. He is the authority, he is shaping, and the future is in the hands of Christ. So everything we do now is with reference, with, um, reference and with respect for Christ. So it's naming this new world in which we identify ourselves. It is in that context that then Paul then moves to the household instructions. And it's helpful to understand something about where the household fits within the ancient world, which is not the same as it is in the modern world. The household is a package. And uh, it, the thinking goes back to the time of uh, uh, Plato and of Aristotle in particular, who was massively influential. And uh, Aristotle's picture of a healthy city, a healthy society, was made up of a number of core building blocks, if you like. The first is the partnership between couples, between male and female, and between master and the slave. And that partnership is then packaged that they would live in the context of a household. And a household is, is an extensive thing, we'll come to in a minute. But it includes not just the biological family, but it will include all those who work, who serve, who contribute, and the wider extended family, nephews and nieces, are all drawn into this household. And when you gather those households together, he says you get a village. And when you gather those villages together, then you get a city. So that core element of the household is fundamental, it is essential for a healthy community and society, as conceived by Aristotle, but as protected by law within the, the Greek and Roman world. So Paul was not speaking about households and uh, arrangements as we know in the modern world, he's speaking into and to challenge in some ways what it looked like in the world of his day. And that was all assumed in the way in which Paul uh, addresses it. So the household wasn't the nominal mum, dad and two and a half kids, um, whatever the proportion is as the average these days. It was a much more extensive gathering including those with the, uh, as I say, nephews and nieces and those who have been adopted into the family, uh, those who contribute, and the slaves who are also part of the household. 
So Paul's instructions are not just sort of discrete relationships. They were in, all integrated. They were interconnected. And Paul des- describes the three main pairs of the, the typical household, although there were as many variations as there was that typical arrangement between the husband and wife, between the father and the children, the father specifically, and then between masters and slaves. Next week we're going to come to the masters and slaves side of the household, but for this week I just want to focus primarily on the husband and wife and in that context the relationship of the children as well. Now we need to recognise that we're not being given a description of a, a blueprint for all marriage in this passage. Paul was not describing the roles of any marriage relationship that should stand for all times and all places. Rather, he's assuming the marriage of his day, the world of uh, in the Greek and Roman world, which is very different from the way it is today. Let me just give you two examples of how different it is. First of all, with marriage uh, as shaped by Roman law, uh, as defined by uh, either the marriage without hand or the marriage with hand. Sine manus, without hand, means that a, uh, the father would give a daughter in marriage but without giving the, hand, the father's hand in marriage. That is to say the father retains power and authority over his daughter even though she is married. He retains the legal control of her property, of her inheritance, and of uh, all the authority of giving permission would stay with the father when the marriage is given without the giving of the hand. And you can see it expressed in the various different uh, statues and reliefs that shows the, the relationship of the hand is very significant. If the father gives the daughter with a suitable dowry and by the uh, agreements, cum manos, the word manos means hand. Uh, That's why we have manipulate is the word of how we use things with our hands. The word chairman actually is not a a gender-based word. It means the person who who holds the chair. Uh, The manos at the end is those who are steering the, the, the committee, the group. So the word manos means hand. If the hand is given, then the authority of the father then goes to the husband. And the husband would then own and have exercise control over the property and possessions of the wife and all the decisions that goes with that. So it's a very different type of relationship compared to what we would experience today and even the variety of marriages in different cultures and times. Paul is not seeking to break apart that structure. He's assuming it and asking the question, how can we be followers of Christ in that type of relationship, in that sort of household? Let me give you another example of how different that is in terms of the the power dynamics that were just part and parcel of the the Greek and Roman world compared to today's world. And that comes in the relationship and the power that the father had over children. 
it is actually the, uh, what's called, the term was called pater familias, and it was enshrined in law with the legal rights of power of life and death. And it started from birth. So when a child was born, a child, whether it's the, the child of his wife or the child of this, any of his slaves, would be placed before the father who had the legal power to decide whether to keep the child or not. And if the child was left on the floor in front of the father, then someone else in the household would take the child, take it outside the household and leave it to be exposed. In some cases that was horrific in terms of just to uh, not to be provided for. Most cases they would be taken and placed somewhere else in the community where other people who were looking for a child could come and pick up a child who'd been abandoned, take that child and raise it for themselves. Very often those who would do that would be slave owners um, and the slave owner would come and take a child, raise it for the purposes of then selling it in due course. Again, a very different world, but this was something that was commended by the, prop, by the, uh, the philosophers and was enshrined in law. <coughs> if the father chose to pick up the child, as we see in this statue, that would be saying, I accept this child within my household and I will raise and take responsibility for the nurture and the care of this child. So it's an extraordinary, powerful position to be, the pater familias as the centre of the household. Within that context, the wife would be the domus, uh, would actually be uh, exercise management of the household. So the pater familias is the rule that a father exercised over the entire household. Their word went for everything. They were expected to provide, but also have the right of, uh, of, of uh, decide if anyone in the household should be sold into slavery. The children could be sold into slavery to service a debt. The father had the power to do so. And uh, they had the power to execute, to kill uh, any of the slaves. Um, the slaves had no legal identity in that space. So this is a very different world. So when we read these words, we need to recognise Paul is speaking into how can you be a follower of Christ in that sort of context? And we don't translate that straight into our own world and assume that Paul was talking about marriage as we know it. Let me explain the difference a little bit in terms of the different culture. When we prepare people, a missionary, for uh, a cross-cultural mission experience, perhaps an overseas mission experience, we prepare missionaries to say, we need to recognise that the culture you're stepping into is different to this culture. And there's various things you need to know and understand and respect about that culture, how to dress, how to interact, who to speak, how to greet people, how to show due respect in different contexts. And the way that ends up looking uh, in terms of being a, a follower of Christ in that space could look quite different to how it is in another culture. So the work we do when we read the Bible is to recognise that speaking into and out of one culture, we have to do some work to translate that into our own time in our own context, and it could end up looking quite different. So that's just a significant background 
to help us to know how is Paul guiding people in their lives to be faithful followers of Jesus in these quite different household dynamic with so much power and authority held by the male. It is a thoroughly patriarchal model. Paul is not commending the model. He says, how can we make this work? We look at the example of Jesus. How did Jesus use his power and his authority? And that's where the the radical side of Paul's instructions comes. So the wife would be the mistress of the domus, the oiko despotic, as I uh, once informed Fiona, and she's never forgotten the, uh, the, how to be the, the despot of the house, exercise the authority of the household, uh, was a significant role. But this is not the same as the modern family. In fact, the whole notion of a neat nuclear family is not at all in the picture. It's much more of a messy, eclectic mix of those who come into some sort of relationship of commitment and of of support within whatever that household looks like. In that background, Paul then begins to talk about what difference does it make when we recognise that the spirit is at work within us, in every one of us, not just in the father, not just in those in the most powerful. And Paul's instruction at the end of this long sentence, verse 18 to verse 20, give way to one another. That's how I'm going to to explain the word submit um, in a minute. Out of reverence to Christ, without exception, every one of us should be doing so to one another. In that context, Paul then says, wives to your husband. So that verse 21 that starts in our English translations, wives submit to your husbands, the verb, give way, is actually not even there. It's provided by the previous sentence. So we don't have a verb, you assume that the verb that's all, all last mentioned is still in operation. So this relationship of wives to the husband is one and the same as a relationship for all believers to each other. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. It does not mean that husbands are not also expected to submit to their wives. Paul has just said to one another. He hasn't said one group to the other. In the same way that when Paul instructs, instructs husbands to love their wives, we don't assume it means that wives don't have to love their husbands. He's just emphasising one particular thing in this context. Now, the notion of submitting does not necessarily imply who, who is the boss. It talks more about a recognition of the way in which God is at work in and through every one of us. And in this context, I think a better way of, of hearing it with uh, a valid way of hearing it, is the word to yield, to give way. It just makes for more orderly relationships. And do we just say, look, when my car on the, is on the road, every other car has to give way to me? No, we give way to one another. It's obvious. It's what the roundabout rules teach us. And that's how we can avoid the conflict or the clashes or the, the, the uh, chaos that can come if we don't observe it. 
It's the notion of deference, of deferring to one another, of respecting one another. So you'd summarise it, is uh, give way to one another out of reverence for Christ. Or as this lovely little uh, summary version came up, I'd love to find a cup for it. Keep calm and submit to one another. (laughs) It's not a bad paraphrase for what Paul's sense is at this point. So this is something that we do throughout the body, no less for wives to the husband. But then we come to the second issue, which is so frequently misunderstood, and I have to say mistaught within the church. Sadly, now more than ever, the assumption that the word head is one and the same is the notion of headship. And where we see the word head, we just import the notion of headship. It is not. The word headship actually doesn't occur anywhere in Scripture. The metaphor for head does occur. But headship is a specific assumption that is talking about a gender-based hierarchy of authority. Someone is the boss, others need to obey. And that is not how the metaphor for the word head works. Let me say it again. The metaphor head, the metaphorical use of the word head, does not speak about a a gender-based hierarchy of relationships. That has been read into it and repeated over and over and over again. But it is actually not correct. Let me just unpack it a bit more. There's a lot of studies, and I'm giving you a very short version of uh, some very long research papers. When it's used in a metaphorical sense, not just a literal head, but as a metaphor, it has multiple connotations. It can refer to something which is uttermost. The head is on top of the body. It can talk about a top point, something which is prominent. So a mountain can have its head in the clouds because it's prominent. That's how it could also be used. It can defer to something who is the hound, the founder, the beginning, the first of a family dynasty can be referred to as the head in terms of the person it all started with. It can refer to uh, being the starting point often the starting point of life, a point of origin, of temporal priority. This is where it all began since. And it was also used as someone who had a status of being foremost, the most visible, preeminent, or uppermost. And that is the way in which a husband worked within a household in the ancient world. What we need to recognise is that as Paul was using the metaphor... Through the example of Jesus, he's talking of a strongly relational sense of a bonded ties of connectedness, of mutual love and respect, and of responsibility arising out of the origins of a relationship. Now, that's a, that could be unpacked a lot more than the summary I'm going to give you there. But let me just give you the, the short version. As Paul uses the metaphor for head, he says it's not saying it's all about the head. They are most important. They are most prominent. They need to be the one in the driver's seat. They need to be one holding the remote control of the TV, whoever's in charge. Paul's saying it's not all about them. If you're a husband, it's not all about you. He says think about the example of Jesus and you'll soon see 
Jesus was saying it's all about everyone else. How can I serve you? How can I assist you? How can I nurture and encourage and provide for you? Paul says that is what this headship means, not who's the boss. In fact, it's the complete opposite. Once we begin to understand that is Paul's main point, we read the passage very, very differently. So Paul has now undertaking a radical reshaping of those household relationships of a whole new dynamic. For husbands, and he emphasises this, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, cherished the church, nurtured the church. That is the example of what Paul means by being the head. And for wives, uh, the summary verse comes in verse 33. However... Each one of you, the husbands, must love his wife as he loves himself. And the wife must respect her husband. Striking, he doesn't use the word obey. All the other household codes would use the word obey. Paul does not use that word in this relationship. Respect her husband. And a final footnote recognising that the, the role, the power of the father over the children is enormous. There's one beautiful little line, and I'll finish with this one. Next week we're going to pick up with the, husband, with the, uh, the masters and slaves. But he says, fathers, don't exasperate your children. Now that is a work of the Spirit. Amen.